Amen. Is your prayer life bold? Is your prayer life bold or is it boring? While prayer on this side of eternity will always require discipline and perseverance, our passage today is one of the most dramatic examples in all of Scripture of the boldness and vulnerability that that God wants you to cultivate with Him in prayer and the profound truths that make a a bold prayer life like this possible. To set up this bold prayer and the the convictions behind it, we're going to break our passage into two main points. We're going to look at the inclusion of Abraham and the intercession of Abraham. So if you're taking notes, it's the inclusion and the intercession of Abraham. For our first main point, remember what we studied last week. In a totally unique moment, Abraham hosted God and two angels for dinner. The Lord came to to Abraham's tent, and he came to announce to Sarah personally that she would have a son, even though it was a biological impossibility for her because of her age. The first part of the Lord's visit was primarily focused on the message for Sarah that was meant to strengthen her faith. But now in the last half of the chapter, we'll see that God also had an important message for Abraham as well. In verse 16, the three visitors had finished their meal and and Abraham, as the ideal host, he was walking with them to see them on their way when they stopped to look over the city of Sodom. When they stopped, the Lord asked this question. Should I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is just and right. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised him. In these verses, God reveals his thought process to us and explains why he's including Abraham on what he's about to do to Sodom. And there are two big reasons. The first is God included Abraham because of his role. Because of his role. In verse 18, God cites his promise that Abraham was to father a great and powerful nation that would bless the whole world. And so because of that role, it was fitting that Abraham be aware and understand this this profound act of judgment that was coming to the prominent cities of the plain near him. The second reason that God included Abraham in on his plans, it flows from the first, and that is Abraham's responsibility. In other words, what was the responsibility Abraham had in his role? Looking at verse 19. For I've chosen him so he'll command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised him. God chose Abraham to become a great nation, and here we see the means by which God intended to fulfill that promise. Did you catch this? This is wild. Look at it again. God says, I've chosen him, so he'll command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord. And then he goes on and says, this is how I'm going to fulfill to Abraham what I've promised. It was as Abraham commanded his children and his whole household to to keep or obey the way of the Lord. That was how God was going to fulfill his great promises to him. This verse alone, it it could be a whole message because it highlights the responsibility and the opportunity of every single parent before God. Have you ever thought about what the number one responsibility of all parents is? 
someone asks you that question, what, what do you think you would say? Is it to make sure your kids eat the healthiest food? You know, only superfoods for my kids. Is that the number one responsibility? Obviously not. But what, what about is it, is it ensuring they get the best possible education? Is it to make sure they're successful at developing their, their unique talents and abilities? Is it to make sure that they have good manners and are well-behaved church kids? You know, none of those are, are bad things, but none of those is even half as important as the number one priority of parenting. See, we see in this passage that if you're a parent, your responsibility is to teach and to model the way of the Lord to your kids, his way that is right and just. That's the number one priority. And we can get even more specific than that if we ask the question, what is the most right thing that you can do? What's the most right and just thing that any human being can do? Well, God answers that in the famous passage in Deuteronomy 6. He says, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Jesus, of course, he cited this passage when saying what is the most important commandment. What's the greatest commandment? The most right and just thing then, it can't be boiled down to a specific action or behavior, but it's found in the attitude and the affections of your heart. The most right thing is to love God above all else. From a biblical perspective then, no matter how much you love and care about your children, you are going to miss the mark as a parent unless loving God is the highest priority of your life. Unless loving God above all else, if that's not your number one priority, you're gonna miss the mark. And, and your goal then needs to be to shepherd your children towards that as well, that your children would love God with all their heart and soul and mind, and they would follow him wherever God leads them. Our goal for our children, it has to be higher than them simply becoming respectable, well-behaved, or successful. Because the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they checked all of those boxes. They were respectable, they were the most respected in their society. They were well-behaved, at least externally. They were successful. They were looked up to. But the Pharisees of Jesus' time, they were the ones who were the furthest from God. They were the ones who were hardest toward the gospel. Now, if I'm honest, in my parenting, when I'm just parenting, kind of without, without God's wisdom, my, my natural default is to focus on improving my kids' behavior. Like that's just what I, I default to. But do you know what that impulse leads towards? It leads to raising little Pharisees. That's what it leads to. It leads to raising Pharisees, not young men and women who genuinely fear and love God. And so the responsibility of parenting, it's to teach what is right and just to our kids, to model that, particularly that we should love God with all of our heart and soul and mind. Now, obviously, we have no, no shot at that apart from the grace of God. But that's the number one responsibility. We see that here. But on top of the responsibility, there's more than that. We also see the opportunity of parenting. The opportunity of parenting is a chance to change the world. See, all the nations of the world, they were going to be blessed through Abraham because he was the forefather of the only Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Now, in an obviously very different way, but in a, a similar way as well to Abraham, the responsibility of parenting is still an opportunity to change the world. 
As our society continues to rebel against God and more and more children are raised in broken and and dysfunctional homes, there's a greater opportunity than ever before for Christ-centered parents and families to show the power and the sweetness of the gospel and to make Christ attractive to our world. And one of my favorite examples of this is my grandparents, Jim and, and Shirley Kloster. Both of them grew up going to church every single week in small town Iowa, but they weren't Christians. They went week in, week out. They weren't Christians, and they didn't become Christians until they started attending a new gospel preaching church plant in their area, which meant that my mom and and her siblings, they weren't saved before they were in middle school and and high school. So my grandparents, they they didn't have this goal when their, their kids were younger. My mom doesn't remember them ever teaching her the Bible, but she does remember how much her parents' lives began to change when they came to Christ. She remembers how they began to study the Bible for themselves and the influence that their new relationship with God had on the family. And each of their kids eventually came to Christ. And even after moving out and starting families of their own, all their kids, they wanted to come back to the, the little house out in the country. Not just to see their, their parents, but to see each other. There's a, a real love and affection that God, God blessed their family with. And they had a, a big house out in the country, but as uh, their kids had families of their own, pretty soon it it wasn't big enough to fit everyone. And people wanted to be together. And so uh, for family reunions, pretty soon it was, there was lots of tents. People would bring sleeping bags and just sleep, sleep out on, on the deck underneath the stars uh, in the summer, <laughs> not, not in the winter. But some families, there's an expectation, like you, you better be there. Like you feel guilty if you don't come. There was none of that. It wasn't like you're going to get written out of, you know, Nana and Papa's will. There was none of that. Like people just wanted to be there. There was a love and, a, and, a, and a, a joy and excitement to be together. And so much of that is because my grandma and grandpa, they did a wonderful job of helping everyone to feel like they belonged, showing love to each person in the family and in their own ways, trying to point their family towards Christ. You know, decades later, Jim and Shirley, they have 21 grandkids. I have a photo here. This is pretty old. I apologize, but it has all of their grandkids in it. Now, many of those grandkids have gotten Married. And so at this point, there are over 60 closters in the family, and all of the, the adults are professing Christians. Almost all of them are faithfully serving in gospel-preaching churches, and many have been involved in planting new churches or new church locations. And so it's not an exaggeration to say that thousands of people's lives have been impacted for the kingdom of God through the family that, by God's grace, my, my grandparents built. It's all been God's grace. God has used that godly family in a huge way. Now, I was tempted to give the whole message to this topic because it's so important and because many of you right now, you're in the thick of it with parenting. Like, that, that's where you're at. However, this is not the main point of the text. And so I wanted to share enough to hopefully encourage you. I know many of you, you just need to be reminded that you have to, to, to own this responsibility and to be reminded of what a great opportunity it is if you're a parent. Others of you, you might be listening and you might think, I need to be more equipped. I need to figure out what God says about parenting. And if that's where you're at, I have two recommendations for you. The first is slightly self-serving, but I gave a whole message on this topic last year at a parenting conference. And if I, if I had to share just my heart, like the, the things I'm most passionate about, the things that have been most helpful, truth-wise and application of those truth-wise, truth uh, for myself and my wife, it would be in that message. And so if you want, uh, you could check that, check that out if you think it would be helpful. The second thing I would recommend is the book Shepherding Your Child's Heart by Ted Tripp. 
I read this years ago, right when my kids were, were little. So in many ways, I didn't have a chance to apply it yet, but I read it and I thought, this is solid gold. This is solid gold. And many of you have read that as well, but uh, I found some messages online from this book. And as I was listening to those messages recently, it, it convicted me that I've been missing the mark in some ways and in just instructing and disciplining my kids. And so it was such a helpful refocuser for me. It was very, very good uh, for me to, to just go over some of those truths again. And my dad, he told me once that he, growing up, he would try to, to read a book on parenting every single year, just to keep learning and also just to help keep it, keep it the right priority in his soul. And so that'd be another resource I would recommend to you. Now, I do realize that many of you here are not married. <laughs> Some of you might be thinking, is this, is this relevant for me at all? And it is. I wish I could give a whole another message, a whole different message on how if you are single, you've been given something infinitely more valuable than a spouse and kids, if you know Christ. You know, for those of you who are single, there are some unique challenges that, that come with not being married, especially if you want to be. But what you have to realize is that you have just as much opportunity to change the world as anyone who is married or have kids. You have to realize that. You're no less valuable to God. You're no less important to the church. And you're at no less, dis or no less of an advantage to be used by God for his kingdom. And one of the best examples of that is the Apostle Paul. He was unmarried, and arguably he advanced God's kingdom more than any other person besides Jesus in all of human history. And he was the spiritual father to, to countless people that he led to Christ. If you're single and if you will use your gifts that God has given you to build up the church, if you're willing to pour out your life in gospel ministry for others, God will use your life to change the world. And I look back at and my life, and, and some of the people that the Lord used to impact them the most, many of those are people that, that I built friendships with, that I spent time with before I was married. I see the way God's using their lives now. It's like God, God, God wants to use your lives. And I think Isaiah 56, it, it captures in a dramatic way the privileged position that, that single people have in the Lord. In this verse, in verse 5 of that chapter, God promises eunuchs who can never have a biological family. He promises them this. I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. Better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. That's pretty radical in our culture. But what you have to understand is that in that culture, it was far more radical. This would be far more shocking when so much of the culture, it was built financially, socially, theologically around the importance of having kids. You know, Pastor John Piper, he, he draws out what a particularly radical claim that, that verse would have been in that culture in his message, Single in Christ. Single in Christ. I wish every single, single person in our church would, would listen to this message or, or read it. Really, it'd be good for anyone, especially if you if you do work with singles, to check this out. And again, the, the big idea is that even if you're single, you can be a father, you can be a mother spiritually. Again, you're, you are no less valuable, you are no less important to the church and to God's kingdom than anyone who's married. Again, I wish I could give a whole message on that, but that's not the main point of this text. And so let me kind of, instead of talking the rest of the time about parenting and singleness, we're gonna, we're gonna switch gears back to the passage. And I want you to, to observe one other thing about God's inclusion of Abraham. 
We just looked at how God chose Abraham to raise his family in the way of the Lord that is right and just. That's the phrase, right and just. And the following conversation with Abraham is all about righteousness and justice. So we see that, especially in verse 25, where Abraham asks, won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? And so in many ways, the following conversation that we're going to look at that ends the chapter, it's like a training for Abraham. It's like this training session for him that was meant to allow him to better understand the righteousness and justice of God. God wanted Abraham to know exactly why Sodom and Gomorrah were going to be destroyed so that he could explain and and pass on the spiritual significance of that judgment to his children and to those after him. As, As future generations saw the remains of Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction there. God wanted them to to understand how seriously he takes sin, but also the heart behind his judgment as well. And with that context in place, let's look at our second main point, the intercession of Abraham. The intercession of Abraham, verses 20 through 25. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense and their sin is extremely serious. I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. The men turned from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Two quick things to point out there. God knows everything. Why does he need to go down? Why does he need to go down? Well, he's condescending to Abraham's level. but I think he's also helping us to see that God never does justice randomly. He doesn't, he doesn't do it carelessly. In fact, in, in Deuteronomy, there's a command that, that justice needed to be enforced with at least two witnesses. If you're, gonna, if you're gonna, especially for capital punishment, serious cases, there had to be at least two witnesses. And so this is probably why he sends the two angels there, to just to inform that practice, to show how, how precise and measured his judgment is. Second, I think the, the reason he says this and, and sends these men away is to give Abraham a chance to interact with him alone. He says, if not... I will find out. And so he, he leaves the door open. In many ways, it's an invitation for, for Abraham to interact with him, to engage with him. And we see that in the rest of the chapter. Picking up again in verse 23, Abraham stepped forward and said, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people who are in it? You could not possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? As you continue in this chapter, God agrees with Abraham's prayer to spare the whole city for the sake of a 50. And as you continue to read, Abraham explores the extent of God's mercy. He says, well, okay, 50, but what about 45? 40, 30, what about 20? All the way down to 10. He's like, if there's 10 righteous, will you spare the city? And with every request, God agrees if that many righteous people are found. Now, this is the first time in all of Scripture that that someone is recorded as specifically praying on behalf of others, which is known as intercessory prayer. And I want you to notice three things about this prayer. The first is that it is humble. It's a humble prayer. Abraham refers to himself as dust and ashes in verse 27 compared to God. He's worried that God might be angry with his persistence in verses 30 through 32. Abraham, he he knows he's addressing his superior. 
He knows that God is the judge of, of the whole world. And so there's an obvious reverence in his tone. But at the same time, the prayer isn't just humble. It's also bold. It's a very bold prayer. Abraham dares to directly tell the judge of the whole world that he can never sweep away the righteous along with the wicked. That's a gutsy thing to tell God what he can and cannot do. He dares to wonder if God will consider sparing the city despite God's clear indication that he plans to destroy it. He ventures to explore how low God will go when asking about how few righteous people were needed to spare the city. I really like the way one commentator put this. He said, Abraham is a man who will not take yes for an answer. <laughs> he, just, he just keeps going. God says yes, and Abraham just keeps asking. He gets another yes. He keeps asking. Now, his prayer, I think, is refreshingly alive and adventurous and vulnerable. This, this humble and bold prayer, that's a rare combination. So I think for some people, it's, it's easy to err on the side of our prayers not being humble. It can be easy to, to pray and, and lack the reverence that God deserves, to forget who we're dealing with, his holiness, his greatness, how much greater he is than us. There is a way of being too familiar with God, and that's when you forget who he is. Now, on the other side of the coin, it's also easy to pray and lack boldness, to pray and, and to not really be intimate with God, to not really be honest with him about what's going on, to not pour out your heart to him, to, ne to never ask him the things you really want to ask him or address the things you really care about with him. And so we see in Abraham's prayer, it's rare because it's both humble and bold, but there's one last characteristic of Abraham's prayer that makes it even rarer, and that is that it's merciful. It's a merciful prayer. Now, some suggest that Abraham was only praying for Sodom because Lot was in it. I don't think that, I don't think that explains the prayer very well. See, Abraham, he surely knew the wickedness of Sodom. He was aware of how wicked the city was, and so he could have simply agreed with God. Nowhere in the prayer is he like, God, these people really aren't that wicked. That's not his attitude. He could have just agreed with God. He could have said, God, these people are vile. These people, they are, they are wicked. Go ahead and smite them. Go ahead and just judge them. Wipe them out, but spare Lot. Please spare my nephew. He could have, he could have said that, and that would have been a safer prayer. He would have been agreeing with God's plan rather than challenging it. Abraham, he, he doesn't dispute the wickedness of Sodom, and yet he's still asking God to spare them on the basis of the righteous. And when we factor those things in, Abraham, his prayer, it's exploratory, and it's exploring based on two clear theological footings. There's two things that Abraham's convinced of. The first is he is convinced of the justice of God. God is the judge of the whole world, and he's always going to do what is right. Now, even his famous question, won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? That's a rhetorical question. It's not doubtful. He's boldly affirming his confidence. God is always going to do what is right. So he's confident of God's justice. And yet the second thing he's just as sure of is that God is also merciful. In this prayer, it seems to hint that Abraham understood the glorious reality that God prefers to give mercy instead of judgment. Ezekiel 33, it confirms this by saying, God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but desires them to repent and live. He doesn't delight in, in the death of the wicked, of judging them, but what he desires is their repentance. This intercessory prayer then, it's impressive because it's the first time we see someone in Scripture praying on behalf of sinners. 
It's the friend of God, Abraham, asking for the infamous city of Sodom to be shown mercy. Do you regularly pray for our city? Do you regularly pray for God to, to save the unbelievers in your life, even those who, who might be very antagonistic towards you? Probably all of us know people who, who hate some of the core truths of Christianity that we hold dear. It might be a, a coworker or a neighbor, maybe a, a longtime friend, maybe even family. And while many of those people are, are probably respectful towards you, you could say at the least that they are ideological enemies of the gospel. Now, what did Jesus tell us to do with our enemies? Did he tell us to cancel them <laughs> or slander them or hate them? Obviously not. You said, pray for your enemies. Pray for your enemies. And so as believers, it's important that we're not naive. There are people who hate what we believe. There are people in our society who would, would be so happy for the influence of Christianity to be removed, for, for, it, for it to be um, just rendered illegitimate in people's minds, the faith of the gospel. We shouldn't be naive to that. But at the same time, there's a danger of then viewing those people as enemies, that, that's the primary way we think about them, instead of thinking about them as made in the image of God, instead of thinking about them as, as people that, that Jesus was willing to die for. So we need, to, we need to, if we're going to be like Jesus, we need to pray for our enemies. We need to pray for those who, who oppose us or who are against us or anyone who, who doesn't know Christ. We should pray for their salvation. And one of the things that excites me in, in thinking about people who are currently antagonistic towards the gospel is the way that God can use their lives if they're saved. And you think about the Apostle Paul again, the way that, that God used him to turn the world upside down because he, his whole thing was capturing and imprisoning Christians so they could be killed for their faith. And then he got saved. And it's pretty hard to explain the Apostle Paul's life apart from him actually encountering Jesus Christ. So in college... I remember there's a good, good friend of mine. He, he got saved, and, and uh, before his salvation, when he got to campus, you know, he was known because he helped lead the charge for all the parties. And he was very immoral. He was very popular. Uh, everyone loved him. And so in the dorms, everyone knew him because he helped, he helped get the parties going. And yet when he got saved, there was this dramatic shift. The guy trying to get everyone to go to the bars, now he's inviting everyone to church. The, you know, the one who was leading the parties, now he, he's, tech, he's talking to people about Jesus, encouraging them to accept Christ. That year, it was one of the most fruitful years in, in ministry, and part of it is just because of the impact that this guy's life had. It was such a dramatic change. You know, God, he, he wants us to pray for those who are lost, even the people who might seem the furthest away from the Lord to us. I think Abraham's prayer, it's a wonderful model for how to, to pray and, and intercede for unbelievers. But if that is where we stop, if that's where we just ended the message, then, then we would miss the greatest motivation and fuel for intercessory prayer. See, for many Christians, prayer, that's one of the areas where they feel the most convicted. If I, if I said, how's your prayer life going? How would you answer that? No, don't, not out loud, but in your head, how, how's it going? And many Christians like, eee. Oh, not very good. Not that great. You see, if, if I just urged you to intercede like Abraham, pray more like Abraham, you might feel guilty. You might try harder for a little bit. That's, that's, not going, that's not going to transform your prayer life because it misses the only truth that can produce humble, yet bold, yet merciful prayers. 
And this is the truth that can teach us how to pray like Abraham. And that truth, it's foreshadowed throughout this passage. One of the ways that it's foreshadowed is Abraham, his function as a priest. In many ways, Abraham is, is functioning similarly to a priest. He's asking God to spare a wicked city for the sake of the righteous. And God, he's shockingly happy to do so. Have you noticed that? Some people think that, that Abraham, he's kind of like haggling with God, like that's the spirit. I don't think that's the right, the right description of it at all. But even if it was, even if Abraham was haggling with God, God's not driving a hard bargain. <laughs> he's like, he doesn't, he doesn't push back at all. He's like, yeah, yes, yes. He doesn't, he doesn't resist Abraham's prayers at all. There's something strange, though, about this passage and these prayers for the city, and that is that Abraham stops at 10. Many people have pointed that out. Have you ever wondered that before? Like, why did Abraham just draw the line at 10? Some people suggest that 10 is the, the smallest uh, a synagogue could be. So, so maybe he's just praying there praying that there has to be at least this remnant in the city. And so he stops there. As far as I know, this is before synagogue, so I don't know if that's a great explanation. And he might have felt he had just probed as far as reverence permitted. Maybe he, he felt confident there had to be at least 10 righteous people there. Maybe he felt like, I've gotten, I've gotten close enough. We should, we should be good to go. Or conversely, maybe as Abraham prayed, he reflected on his own lack of lived righteousness. Maybe he's thinking about, I'm praying for the righteous, but I haven't lived righteously. That's been on display for us as we've been studying Genesis. Maybe he began to, to think about, but about that. And whatever the reason was that Abraham stopped at 10, the rest of the scripture, it fills in the numbers for us that, that the prayer leaves unanswered. See, the rest of, of scripture, it helps us think about God's justice more clearly. The Old Testament and the New Testament both state without flinching that there is no one righteous, not even one, not even one. God is the judge of the whole world, and that is his assessment of you. That's his assessment of me. And all of sinful humanity, he says, we're not righteous. This helps explain one of the, the age-old questions. Why do bad things happen to good people? That's an honest question, but it's, it's actually a misguided question according to scripture. We might feel like there's good people relative to others as we look at each other, but what the Bible says is there's no one good. When we compare ourselves to God and his perfect standard, it's so clear how sinful and selfish that we are. A better question biblically is why do good things happen at all to bad people like us? This helps it explain why even those who trust in God, why do they still suffer? Those who trust in God, why do they still suffer along with the wicked? Isn't it true that in this life, if you're just purely looking at, at things from an earthly perspective, don't people who trust in God often get the same, get caught up in the same judgment that comes for the wicked? Doesn't that, doesn't that happen at times? It does. It does. But what we see from Scripture is that if each one of us got what we deserve, if we got what God should give us, it would be his wrath. That's what we should get. And, and next week, we're going to discover that Sodom and Gomorrah, they become a vivid preview of the fiery eternal judgment that each one of us is worthy of experiencing. It becomes a preview of, of hell. That means that, that Abraham's prayer, it did not ultimately spare the city of Sodom, even though God did answer his prayer, according to chapter 19, to rescue Lot. 
God did answer his, his prayer by providing a way of escape for Lot's family. So Abraham's intercession, it didn't ultimately save the city, but it does foreshadow a much greater intercession. And that was done by the great high priest, Jesus Christ. The night before Jesus died, he prayed the, the great high priestly prayer. And he prayed that he was going to sanctify himself, to set himself apart so that we could be set apart as well. Though his people could be set apart or spared and saved and made right with God. As one preacher puts it, while Abraham was willing to pray for the wicked city of Sodom, safe from his position high above the plains, Jesus Christ prayed for wicked sinners while painfully hanging for them on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Abraham prayed for the wicked people of Sodom to live. Jesus Christ actually died for the wicked. He laid down his life for the wicked. Abraham was afraid of stirring up God's anger with his prayers, but Jesus Christ voluntarily absorbed the full force of God's wrath for our sin into himself. He voluntarily became the target for God's wrath so that he could save us. You see, the cross answers the question of whether God would spare the wicked, at least from an eternal perspective. Is God willing to spare the wicked for the sake of one truly righteous individual? And if it's Jesus Christ, then the answer is yes. Jesus lived a perfect life, perfectly righteous, and he chose to die in our place. He's the only one who loved God with all of his heart and soul and mind. And he voluntarily died for, for sinners like you and me who have spit in God's face by the way that we've rebelled. And God says, for the sake of that one, for the sake of my son, I'll spare any who look to him for salvation. I'll spare any who, who turn to him and look for mercy. And not only does he promise to give us mercy, he promises to give us his righteousness, to make us righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Jesus took our sin, became our sin, so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. Abraham was not righteous by the way he lived. We're going to see next week, Lot was definitely not righteous by the way he lived. There's no human being who has lived righteously before God. And yet every human being, no matter how sinful they've lived, no matter how much they've rebelled, every single person can become righteous in the eyes of God by faith in Jesus Christ. That's why in 1 John 1, 9, it says that, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. If you're a Christian, it's just for God to forgive your sins because they've, they've already been paid for by Christ. It'd be unjust for God to punish a believer because those sins, they, they have already been paid for as we turn to him. For those of you who know Christ, who have trusted in Christ, the Lord makes it clear that he doesn't view you primarily as servants. He doesn't view you just as pawns. In John 15, Jesus says that he views his, his people as friends. And like God revealed his plans to Abraham, he has revealed his eternal plans to us in scripture, and he invites us to pray as well. And so to close briefly, let me share two practical takeaways. The first is pray for the lost in our city. Pray for the lost in our city. I would recommend all of you have a, a list of unbelievers in your life that you are committed to praying for the, their salvation. It could be in your head, but I think it's good even to, to write down the list of, of some people, maybe three or five people. 
And the reason I recommend that is because I know personally that it's easy for all of the, the oxygen in my prayer life to go towards my own needs and to go for, towards the needs of my family and the people close to me. And we should pray for those things. Those things are good to pray for. But God, he wants us to become more like him. He wants us to become more like Jesus Christ who came to seek and save the lost. He wants us to, to like Abraham, to pray merciful prayers, to pray for those who don't know him. You know, I just found out recently that my friend in, in college whose life got transformed so dramatically, you know, someone else at, at Drake, they knew someone who went to high school with that person. And that person actually wrote down that my friend was on the top 10 list of people they thought least likely to become a Christian. And so they started praying for him. They started praying for him because he was on the top 10. And he comes to Christ and God's used him in a huge way. We should pray for the people that God has put in our life, for God to save them. The second thing, though, is that we should let the gospel shape those prayers. We should let the gospel shape our prayers. See, we need the gospel if we're going to pray humble, bold, and merciful prayers. The gospel says that, that we are so wicked and lost that God himself had to die for us on the cross. That's the only way you can be saved. And yet it also shows that God wanted to do that. It was his idea. He decided to do that voluntarily. See, if, if you understand the gospel, you can't, it, it drains us of our natural pride. How can we view ourselves as superior to anyone else when we understand how great God is and what he had to do to save us? We're not superior to anyone else, no matter how antagonistic they are towards Christianity. And yet at the same time, it produces a boldness if we understand the gospel because we don't have to be, we don't have to be timid that maybe our attitude will be a little bit off or we'll ask maybe the wrong thing. We recognize, no, God has covered all of our sin He's paid for all of our sin, even the, the times when we've been prayerless. We haven't prayed the way we should. Or we've prayed with wrong attitudes. All those sins have been dealt with as well, so we could come boldly and pour out our hearts to God. And if you've tasted the gospel, if you've tasted the salvation of Jesus Christ, then the most natural thing is that you'll have a desire for other people to come to know your Savior as well. That you'll want other people to know this great God and Savior, the great high priest, Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we have a perfect high priest who represents us and that, that we are righteous before you, Father. Not because of the way we've lived, but because of how you've lived. If there's anyone here who's never, understand, never understood that before, I, I pray, God, you'd help them to sense their lack of righteousness, sense their need for a savior, even today, and turn towards you. God, for the rest of us, Lord, I, I pray that we would be uh, refreshed and ministered to uh, in the gospel. I pray that, that God, we would have a, a greater humility, a greater boldness, and a, a greater heart, Lord, for other people to come to know you. And I pray that you would use our, our church in a greater way and other gospel-preaching churches in, in our city to see many, many people whose lives are heading towards hell to be spared and, and to come to know you and to give their, give their lives to following you. So we ask you to do that. We ask you to do that in surprising ways and people that we would never suspect. And we pray that you'd get all the glory through it in your great name. Amen. We're gonna continue our service now. We're